Section 8. Birthday. I'm dreaming that I'm awake. I dream that I get out of bed and walk across the room. Not this room. And I go out the door. Not this door. I'm at home, one of my homes, and she's running to me, in her small green nightgown with a sunflower on the front. Her feet bare, and I pick her up and feel her arms and legs go around me, and I begin to cry, because I know that I'm not awake. I'm back in this bed, trying to wake up, and I wake up and sit on the edge of the bed, and my mother comes in with a tray and asks me, Hello, I'm Shane, and this is The Writer's Apprentice, a podcast where we learn from reading the works of smart authors. Offred sits calmly by the window, thinking about cushions, seeing nothing but grey outside. She does not see that, if she really tried, she could smash this window. If she could push off at just the right angle, she'd land in the bush below with only a few scratches. She does not see that, despite it being a stately garden, She could probably dash across it fast enough. There are trees to break the line of sight of the guards. The stool the commander's wife sits on to prune the roses is still out there, awaiting their lady once the sky is clear again. The stool might be enough to get her over the wall, but it's not a calculation that Offred has considered. Where would she go anyway? A bell rings, telling her that it's time to eat. This happens around the same time every day, but she can't be sure of that. She goes when she's summoned and eats the choice of food the cook provides. She even finds pleasure in the cosy keeping her second egg warm. She does not think of how useful a weapon the shattered plate might be. A knife they would surely notice. They count them in and out. They do this in pairs with great pride. But they would surely not count all the pieces of a broken plate. It needn't matter, it doesn't cross her mind. Pleasure is an egg. She eats until hurried on. Offrey climbs aboard the birthmobile. She did not get a warning of its arrival, and she did not get a choice. But she has grown okay with this. All the women in the car are in the same position, all excited with the break from monotony. Or are they genuinely excited about their part in what's to come? Offred asks to a lady at random, Whose is it? The woman responds, knowing. The woman knows because she is trusted by the rebel maidens, and news travels between them quickly. Offred is not a rebel maiden, and finds out last. She doesn't seem to take note of this. As they pass through a checkpoint, one of the women in the car pauses her feigned excitement to count the number of guards on duty today. She'll remember this and share it with the others. That was her duty today. Knowing when the patrols are lightest is paramount to the rebel maiden's efforts. When they arrive, the wives are gossiping, praising each other on their pliable handmaids and begrudging their own. Offred overhears one saying their handmaid has been refusing food. It's odd to me that this story is following Offred. The three chapters here make it clear that this is an intentional choice to follow such a useless character, so I'd like to explore why that is. I'm holding out hope that maybe there's a reason behind it. In each of these chapters, we hear about people with more interesting lives than Offred. The first is her mother, who's fighting and desperate for change. The change she's fighting for doesn't necessarily make her happier. We see later in the chapter that the world has changed, but it's left her bitter, still eager for a fight. The piece of advice for a good novel I read over and over again in different creative writing books is that your character needs to evolve somehow. 
ends differently from how they started. It doesn't have to be a beneficial change. I put it to you that Alfred's mother has made a more interesting character arc than Alfred has. It's the same with Moira. One of the few characters who has rebelled so much that she still holds her own name. Her escape from the handmade training facility, which we also learn about in this chapter, is so far the most action-packed this book has gotten. A character in exactly the same situation as our main character, despite the same risks, does something about her situation. At this point in the story, we don't know what comes of that, and it doesn't matter. We know that Moira is a hero. The kind of person who could have both an active storyline and show us the parts of the world that Offrey is, just with fewer naps in between scenes. Even Janine here has an ambition fulfilled. It's not the baby, it's the sweet that she was after. Offrey's only ambition is to find news of Moira. As a side note, she seems to have given up on finding anything about her daughter or husband, or at least makes no effort to find them in the moments that she has with the network of rebel maidens. The commander here becomes a character too. We learn that even though he's benefiting more than anybody else from his place in the social order, he still longs for the old ways. Even his own urges need to be suppressed, but are released despite the risk. He may not be working to undermine the system, at least not that our impotent point of view can see, but we do find later on that he's part of an underground society that is rebelling in its own seedy way. A study book I'm reading, Beginnings, Middles and Ends by Nancy Cress, gave me some context around what might be happening here. They propose that there are a few questions which a writer should ask to help them determine the shape of their story. The first being, whose story is being told? The second, whose point of view is it being told from? I can't think of many books I've read where the point of view and the protagonist aren't the same person, but is this what's happening here? This is a technique I've seen used mostly in mystery or detective novels, where the sidekick is given the job of leading us through the story. From Poirot's point of view, a story would be rather dull. Whilst we're watching through Hastings' eyes, we get a chance to pick up the clues and work them out on our own. Hastings frequently leads himself down the wrong rabbit hole, and the reader gets great delight in watching his folly, if they're smart enough to keep up with Agatha Christie's clues. Poirot, on the other hand, has often figured out the case within a few chapters, and his thought process revolves around ruling out other possibilities. His role is fairly boring box-ticking, though he's doubtlessly the protagonist. Captain Hastings, like Dr. Watson in the Sherlock Holmes series, never drives the story forwards, and serves only to set the pacing following after Poirot's observations, as they're slowly being given out. This is by the by though, as no one has ever suggested that there's a mystery in The Handmaid's Tale. It certainly isn't Offred's role to lead us to uncover a mystery. The questions I had are about how the world came to be like this, and that's not something this book ever promised to answer. I started this book with the expectation of Offred attempting to escape, but I'm beginning to see that that's not likely on the cards. Even with Offred setting pace of what we learn, it doesn't seem to be leading us along the way in anybody else's story. There are other stories which aren't mysteries, which use the technique of a different perspective from the protagonist, like The Great Gatsby or Moby Dick, where taking a step away from the protagonist can help us paint a better picture of them. In The Great Gatsby, Nick swooning over the title character adds to the narrator's personality, making them a biased retailer of events. It also separates the author's voice from the narration. 
When Nick calls Gatsby gorgeous, it's not the author awkwardly fawning over their own lead character. Having one step between the two gives him some authority to have the opinions that might come across as jarring for a narrating author to make. I never minded walking to and from school every day. It was only about a 15 minute walk each way, so not a long journey anyway. But I'd filled the time writing a story in my head about the gods and their plan to end the world with a bang. To do this, they empowered and riled up two factions of humanity, and tore down the veil between the supernatural and civil worlds. The whole thing was soundtracked by My Chemical Romance, Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco, and drenched in lore from shows like Buffy and Charmed and films like Blade, and it took its tone from there very heavily. Teenage, flamboyant, and utterly self-indulgent. I've since tried writing that story down. The bits of it that I remember are decent. The free line is really fun, and one I haven't read anywhere else. Writing it is an utter cringe fest though. I don't know if it would come across to anyone else reading it, but to me, writing about that character, even in the third person with a different name, feels like I'm revealing a rampantly egotistical part of my soul which ran unchecked during my teenage years. The lead wasn't just a character I'd invented, but something an 11 through to maybe 15 or 14 year old disillusioned me wanted to be. Even writing this in third person, I've never brought myself to try writing in first person. It feels too, well I guess, embarrassing. There are times in books where you can read them and be a part of the story, but sometimes that immersion is partially broken for whatever reason, and I find myself imagining Pratchett or Tolkien sitting at their typewriter. Old men with jam from their breakfast stuck in their beards. In those times, I'm aware that I'm reading the thoughts of an author, which might not stray too far from their personal opinions. I know that fiction is often just fiction, that when J.K. Rowling writes a story about a murderer who wears women's clothes, she's not universally equating the wearing of women's clothes with murderers. Well, you know, actually, that might be a bad example, but my point is that the writer can write something that they themselves do not believe in. The main character from the story in my youth believes that the world could be saved by a tyrannical leader through amorality. This is not something that I believe, although I did spend a summer reading out the shrugs, which may have something to do with it. What I am saying is, it's a shame when a reader pauses their reading and finds themselves thinking, I hope this isn't what the author really thinks. This is what I mean by giving Nick Carraway authority to give opinions. I'm aware that this is an incredibly meta technique to solve a problem that not many authors will have, but Nick can call Gatsby gorgeous, and you know as a reader, that they're reading somebody else's opinion, not necessarily the author's. The author's ego isn't a factor here. We've already made it clear that Nick is not a reliable narrator, when it comes to the matters of his man crush at least. To finish this thought, which clearly has nothing to do with Handmaid's Tale, I've never tried a draft of my story with a supplemental character as the point of view. Maybe that would make the writing less awful for me. Again though, this isn't what's happening in our book. The Handmaid's Tale's point of view character appears, unfortunately, to be our main protagonist. She's not following anyone's endeavours, except Moira's, who she rarely receives news of. But who says that every book needs a protagonist anyway? I mean, if you ignore every creative writing book or course, and the vast majority of other stories ever told, then really you can do what you want. No author signs a contract vowing to commit to adhering to the save the cat structure, or promises to keep escalating tension. 
write what you want, as aimless as you fancy. You want to bring up open-ended questions of variable importance, like where the heck are my other cushions, and what happened to my daughter and husband, and then never address them, then go for it. But I can't promise that I'll enjoy the journey. Hello, and thank you for listening today. I believe we may be at the midpoint of our series. For everyone that's listened to every episode so far, thank you very much. They're all available um, forever, really, so uh, take your time with them. Uh, But it is nice receiving some friendly messages each week, so thank you for everyone that's doing that. The podcast recommendation for this week is on a topic of a certain type of writing. Uh, This is uh, writing for Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. So the podcast I'm recommending is The Game Master's Journey. It's actually a podcast which hasn't released any episodes for a while. I think they've rounded it off now. But I'm still working through the 200 or so episodes. In which you get a bunch of advice about writing an adventure or running a D&D game. But there's quite a lot of overlap with how to introduce certain themes, um, how to represent diversity uh, of both culture and personality throughout your writing, and things like this. There's lots of surprising tidbits which help, not just with interactive tabletop game stories, but also just writing novels. So there's a link to that in the description. Uh, I shall leave you to your day. Have a lovely one. Thank you for listening, and bye-bye.